the Stars, a podcast about the expanse and every episode. I am one of your hosts, Nina. And I am Kat. And today we are in the midst of season one, covering episode five, Back to the Butcher. Um, this episode, so first the title, uh, Back to the Butcher, as we know, if you're watching the episode before listening to this, which you should, uh, refers to the butcher of Anderson Station, Fred Johnson, who gets a really interesting intro in this episode. Um, it was directed by Rob Lieberman, which also directed the previous episode, uh, episode four, CQB. Um, and it was written by Dan Nowak, who is currently an executive producer of the show. Back to the Butcher also refers to the short story, The Butcher of Anderson oh. Station, which is where we learn a lot more about Fred Johnson. And we will discuss that short story a little later on, but for now, we can go right into the episode. Do we want to start with Fred Johnson, since we've already <laughs> introed him a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, It's interesting watching this the fifth time around, because I feel like this is the first time I actually like have like an analysis on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, why don't, why don't you start with what happens with Fred O? So <laughs> we learn more about Fred Johnson's history as the butcher of Anderson Station because the crew is deciding whether or not to take up his offer of help. Right now they are on the Tachi after escaping the Doniger, but they really have nowhere else to go, which leads to an episode long debate as to whether they should go with Fred Johnson or not. I actually thought their debate was really interesting, but I just thought it was interesting that Holden is quick to tell Naomi like, hey, that was 10 years ago. You know, he could be a totally different guy now. That was like a really like uh, abrupt dismissal. I was like, hold on. Like, a lot of people die. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I cut you off. I keep going. No, you're fine. For me, it just feels like it's easy to say that because it wasn't your people being targeted, you know? Absolutely. It's odd to me that for him, a decade is long enough where it's not that big a deal anymore. You can imagine that, like, if something similar had happened on Earth or, like, near Montana, he would have a totally different reaction. Absolutely. he would be absolutely pissed off. He doesn't have Um, any real investment. Exactly. And I I agree with you that it's interesting, that discussion that's being had. One thing that's interesting to me was Naomi. You brought up a lot that she is very, very, um, not slow to act, but, like, she thinks a lot before, like, she makes a move. And this discussion, like, kind of, like, I was almost, like, paying attention to her as the scene was going on. And I realized she doesn't say anything until they, like, get to the very end. And they're like, okay, let's go see Fred. And it's not until then that she's like, why would we do that? Like, she's almost, like, as if, like, wh- how could we possibly, like, come to that conclusion? Um, but it was more interesting to me that she didn't say anything to begin with because, like you're bringing up, Naomi is kind of the only person here that 
like has the most beef with Fred in terms of what we know about him. And like she says later, she's like, I do not like this guy. I do not trust him because, because of certain events uh, that have happened. Um, and it just, it's just an interesting, another interesting facet of Naomi's character uh, that she just isn't what you expect. And I just appreciate it. She is really like, she has a lot like close to her chest, I feel like. Definitely. Definitely. And I like your point about her being quiet until, you know, everyone's ready to go ahead and make that decision because it's almost like she's assessing how do they feel about this and do I need to say something? Ooh, yeah. But I also like the moment where Amos kind of hesitates. (laughs) Like, you know that he does not want to agree with her, but he's also not going to, like, publicly go against her. Yeah. I, ugh, Amos and, ugh, here we go again. Amos and Naomi, like, what can I say? I actually don't, I, like, I should give a disclaimer. I don't remember much that happens in this episode, even though we just watched it. Um, But I. Season one can do that to you sometimes. It does. Like, even when we're talking about the previous episodes that we had just recorded, I'm like, what happened? I think, like, and I'm going to bring this up again. As much as we defend season one, the more I'm going into this season on this rewatch, I can really see, like, why it takes so much out of people to, like, keep going. It is, and this is no disrespect to, like, the adaptation, to the writers, but it is slow. It is not your typical, um cliffhanger every week kind of show and that's tough for people that are used to that it's tough for me I'm like sitting here like haven't we had the group like have group discussions like three times now but like they got a team build I guess they do but speaking of teams and Amos and Naomi their their relationship feels very lived in and I know that we've made this point before But I also like the moment where even though he votes with her, privately he goes back to talk to her and he knows exactly how to approach the subject. He's very relaxed and it's just like, okay, why don't you just tell me why you don't want to make this decision? But we also have to consider what else can we do? Yeah, And she comes back to his side when he approaches her casually as opposed to this is what has to happen. It's actually, like, I think one of the few moments of, like, emotional maturity from Amos. Like, he's, he's, he is, like, seen, even his face, like, in that scene, he just feels very, like, like, almost calming, like a, like a, like an agit, a frightened or, like, an agitated person, where he's just, like, like you're saying, he just kind of knows how to swoop in and, like, like, sort of kindly, like, figure out how she's feeling. And it's not a side of Amos that I think I'm ever used to seeing. Um, I think in this episode we see that. I think in the next episode, I'm like trying to remember. Yeah, because the next episode we see that a little bit. Um, just, like, Amos knowing how to be the mediator when he needs to be, which is rare. Because Amos, like... And we love him. He chooses violence quite frequently. I mean, it's the uh, most direct way out of most of the situations that they're in. And we love that. But he, yeah, I, it's it's really because of the relationship that he has for Naomi. And he has such a deep respect for her. And, like, 
even to this day, I, I still don't like totally know the backstory of their relationship, but like you can tell that she was probably there for him in times that other people weren't, which is interesting given who Naomi is and who will figure out who she is later that she felt like she could do that or that she, she felt the need to do that. Um, but I, I just, I, I think that's why I love it so much because out of all the sort of relations to the dynamics, I guess, in the, t- in, in the team, which we can now say the, uh, the team and the crew, we can say team Ro- uh, Rossi or Rossi. I don't know what people say. Rossi? I hear people say both. I tend to say yeah. Rossi. It just feels more natural so team, to me. Team Rossinante, <laughs> which we can say now, which is great. Um, I don't have to call them Holden and crew. Um, it's. I think that's why I, in this first season, felt so much like liking to Amos and Naomi because they had the, the the established relationship, like you're saying. So I'm like immediately gravitating toward that. Someone, I'm like, oh, these are people that actually respect each other and actually like want to be there for each other exactly. which is great but it's it's funny because like in this episode it feels like the actors are still like learning how to act around each other like I'm sure they're all like very talented but they're almost like still figuring out like what their dynamics are with each other like there's this one I like it kind of makes me cringe every time I watch it but there's this one moment where um Naomi's like really Naomi's just always like really pissed off which makes total sense she's just put in a terrible situation but she's like really irritated at Holden because he's like you know that thing happened Fred Johnson was 10 years ago how do you say that by the way that like a genocide was 10 years ago you know Um, like this was a massacre yeah like a a child could have grown up so many people died still been conscious yeah um and so like he says that and and then he says um weren't you OPA anyway like, so why, why would you distrust, like, the leader of the OPA? And then she has this reaction where she's kind of like, um, she's like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And then she kind of, like, cuts herself off because she, like, doesn't want to, like, explode. And it was just, like, interesting because it, like, it makes sense that Naomi would react this way. But it felt like their dynamic wasn't, like, frictioned enough yet. Like, they haven't had enough friction with each other that I'm, like, invested in, like, seeing how it turns out if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. this is what I mean by like I think the actors are still like figuring out how to like play off one another yeah exactly because then you have um because then you have Amos and Naomi later when they're like by some control panel and like again you can still see them sort of figuring it out but I think this is because this is like the first time well, it's not the first time, but this is, like, one of the few times that they're having, like, actual conversations with each other, as opposed to, like, how do we live and, like, survive this? So maybe that's why. Yeah. But it was just something I noticed. What I also like is throughout this, throughout this episode, we get little clips of what was happening on Anderson Station. And it eventually ends, of course, with Fred blowing up Anderson Station. And I think one of my favorite moments out of that whole side story is hearing Fred Johnson's voice in the present, promising the crew that he is not going to harm them. But it's also the visual is lingering on his past self looking at what's left of Anderson Station 
and all those people that he just killed. Literally, as the text is like reforming to say the butcher of Anderson Station. Oh my god, it's so good. And I mean, and that's clearly uh, for for us. It's supposed to be the moment where, you know, to borrow Holden's phrasing, that's the moment where he stopped playing because he realized he was the boot. Mm, and so, so you think that was for Fred? I think that that phrase that Holden says is something that is going to recur throughout the show. I think it's relevant and sets the tone. And I think it definitely applies to Fred. And I do wonder if maybe we could see it as part of the reason why Holden was more willing to go back, go to Fred. Because maybe he sees this is someone who was forced to do something horrible and realize that I don't want to be a part of this anymore. That's a good point. It's like believing that someone is capable of change. And so then maybe they're capable of understanding the position that the team is in right now. Um, but I all like one thing that I'm really curious about Fred is like, how do you make that transition? Like, how does he go from somebody who literally can, you know, pull the trigger, so to speak, um, on a bunch of innocent belters. And I, I even like, I don't even want to say innocent belters, but just a bunch of belters who like, there was no reason to pull the trigger. How do you go from that to not only living with belters, but leading them? Like what happens to get you from point A to point B? I mean, we do kind of go into that in the short story. So we could talk about it now or we could wait until a little later. Ooh, up to you. I'm perfectly willing to switch up our format just to talk about it. All right. Let's add a little flavor. Let's get a little spicy. Tell me about the Butcher of Anderson Station. So it starts out with Fred Johnson. He is no longer with the UN military. And he's basically just bumming his way around a bunch of Belter bars. He immediately gets kidnapped by Anderson Dawes. And the story is centered around their conversation or interrogation, depending on how you want to look at it. Where Dawes asks him for his perspective on what happened with Anderson Station. I do want to note that there's something I did not realize until reading this. Anderson Dawes and Anderson Station. <laughs> oh, he was named... They don't have a... They do have oh, a connection. Have... Oh! His parents named him after the corporation that owned Anderson Station. They worked for them, and I guess they were kind of trying to get... I think they were kind of trying to get in good with their bosses. I'm not really sure. Wow. But what? it kind of, it's a good way of illustrating Dawes's connection to the belt. And it makes their conversation feel that much more personal. And Fred says something kind of flippant, like, oh, well, I guess um, you feel like I killed your brother. Which Dawes did not really respond to. But it's a really great small note. And I can't believe that, you know, we didn't pick... Like, why is Anderson Dawes... Why does he have the well, same name like, as Anderson had, Station? I think I had always assumed it was just, like, a coincidence. But with this show, like, 
they don't do coincidences. They're like, if they're, like, if something is as blatant as that, like, you might as well assume that there's a connection. But I had just kind of been like, oh, you know, no big deal. But, but the idea of, like, naming your kid after a corporation, I mean, I guess we aren't that far from that. Like, I'm sure kids are being named Elon. Oh, definitely. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there's some little girl walking around and her name is Tesla. Oh, I mean, that's kind of a cool name. It is. I mean, that was a real name, to be fair. Right. Now that I think about it. So I, I, I see it. And like people name their um, kids after Game of Thrones characters and Marvel characters. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, for me, it's like the, a corporation versus a character. It's like if someone named your kid Marvel and you'd be like, what? Like, but I guess Captain Marvel is a character. So maybe that's the point. I don't know. I'm not naming my kids any of these names. Absolutely so. not. I mean, I'm not uh, having kids, but I agree. <laughs> like, if we're going to have that conversation. Um, the other thing I thought, I sort of last thought that I have on Fred is um, we don't actually, like, talk to Fred in this episode. We only um, experience his introduction through either the past, well, literally the past, either the far past or the near past, as in, like, 10 years ago versus, like, a message sent 20 minutes ago um so it's almost like the idea that fred's actions are speaking for him like 10 years ago you have this massacre and then like you say there's that one scene where like he's standing on the ship and watching these dead bodies float by and you then hear the message of present day where he's like i promise like i won't hurt you and you like, I think that's such an interesting and cool way to introduce a character without actually, like, meeting them. Um, and it's it's just, I don't know, I, I've, I was thinking about it a lot. And I've actually, we don't see Avasarala in this episode, I think. But I think we see her in the next episode. And I started thinking about them um, as, like, thematic, as with a thematic connection. So it's just, it's interesting this time around to watch it and be like, oh, they don't, like choose to introduce Fred in a very typical way. Like they don't, our characters don't just go running to Fred. It's like we learn who the the myth is before we meet the man. Oh, even like true. when we, yeah, even before, even when in the last episode, I think uh, we see him talking to the Mormon manager or whatever, and they're talking about his ships. Um, and I think like from that scene, what we get from him is that he can be threatening um because he we we learned that he has a lot of control over the belt um and we learned that he uh was wanted to use the Nauvoo I think to like point sensors at the Doniger or something like that and so I think like the third thing you learn is that he has a vested interest in like what's happening basically out in deep space but like you still don't meet him like Miller doesn't meet him Avasarala doesn't meet him um Team Rossi doesn't meet him. So it's like you get all these uh, imprints of like who this man was, but you don't really get a sense of who he is right now. Right. And we won't until until the next episode. So I thought that was just like a fascinating way to introduce the character. Absolutely. No, I definitely agree. Um, back to the Butcher of Anderson Station. It's interesting to look at the incident through his perspective. And it's pretty much about what you would expect from, <laughs> I mean, as a military man. Like you saying that, I think is different from somebody else <laughs> saying that. So I'm like. So let me elaborate. I think 
it's what you would expect from someone who believes that the organization that they work for is always in the right. So we like repeatedly, we see in the past that the people on Anderson Station were looked at as terrorists or troublemakers. So for him, he's not doing anything wrong by trying to quell their assault. And during their initial interaction, the Belters barricade themselves um, in a certain portion of the station. And then they throw homemade bombs at Fred's troops because their civilian weaponry isn't going to stop, you know, advanced UN military weapons. And that team, they all die. And as one of Fred's subordinates is updating him on it, there's this really, what was to me a very chilling moment where he laughs it off because he says, well, had we known that they had such cheap weapons, we could have just walked up and tased them. They died for no reason, but it's a joke to him. It's funny. And I found that really disturbing, but I don't think it's too far off from how occupying forces look at rebellions. Yeah. I, I mean, like, when you're in a system like that, especially, like, in this context, Earth, which is exerting control over literally an entire system, it makes sense that as a military man, which is the tool of Earth's power at this point, because their foreign policy is pretty much what they've poured all their resources into, like, you yep. can really start to see how you might become, like, God. Yeah. That's really chilling to think about. Um, it, and, and I guess it's interesting then to then compare to Holden, who was in the military and who, who got out because he didn't want to be like that. And exactly. I, you know, props to him, I guess, that, like, he kind of realized that this is not... What I want to be doing with my life. Yeah, and... You know, as much as people, I don't think, I don't know, I don't remember have we talked much about, like, how much people rag on Holden. I think we have a little bit. A little bit, yeah. I was going to say, like, you know, on one hand, I get it. Holden is sort of that, like, plucky, like, naive character who really doesn't understand the laws of the universe. But I think at the same time, like, I think he's such a necessary character because you don't want to fall into the trap of, like, how Fred used to be or maybe how Amos kind of is, or Miller, you don't want to fall into that trap of like, just, just almost uh, believing that this is just the way the world is, and kind of accepting that and and deciding that, well, I'm going to get mine, um, because there's not much else you can do. And so, like, as much as, as, as naive as Holden is, and as much as he has to learn about, like, there is no clear good guy sometimes, or there is no clear bad guy sometimes, I still think his perspective is necessary to be like, you know, at the end of the day, there is still good that can be done. Like injustices still happen and people have to do something about it, which is the total, if you think about it thematically, which if you think about it thematically is like a total opposite perspective for Miller, which is sort of his, his foil, I guess, in this, in the show. Um, The show doesn't really push on it much, but in the books, it's like, it's a very clear, like, Miller versus Holden and like who they are yeah. to each other and 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 we will see that in a few episodes but 
yeah, it's just, I don't know, I, I want to give Holden more credit than people give him. No, I agree. You have to have somebody who is willing to just keep pushing and ask the hard questions and who's, like, willing to, like, you know, fight for others. And someone who so, wants yeah. to maintain some sense of, like, humanity and integrity in places where people are willing to set that aside yeah yeah Holden really works as an interesting sort of like response to how sci-fi can tend to be which is like this sort of like the world falls apart and people become more you know morally corrupt or morally gray rather and like you just got to do what you got to do to get by. And I think having Holden as a character and as a central character is interesting. It's not new. Like, you know, the main character is always like the, you know, we have to do something and like the most goodest person in the universe. But, and like the show doesn't treat him like he's right, but this show is still because like- Because sometimes he, he is very wrong. Oh, many <laughs> times he is very wrong. Um, but the show is like almost acknowledges that like just because he's like it's almost like he is the central character but he's not the protagonist but those statements have to equally be true and yeah i that's my thoughts on holden <laughs> um additionally i thought this was just a really well written story uh i did not realize mm-hmm, i did not realize that 1100 people died wow so it was the it was the belters who chose to um protest for better working conditions but it was also other people on anderson station who were not part of it they just happened to be bystanders and collateral damage and there's this quote um from fred as he's thinking about what is going to happen and what has already happened. Every door he could see might have a family behind it who gasped their last breaths, banging to get out because a bunch of idiot belters had built their barricades where they did, and because he'd chosen to destroy it. And (laughs) much, because that does not confront the root cause of this issue. The reason why those belters went through all that and risked their lives and other people's lives is because they were working in conditions that threatened their lives anyway. He's demonizing them for demanding to be treated well. And then it's easy to make them responsible for everybody's deaths and then kind of tack on that you were part of it, but only in response to what they did. I was going to say, like, I think that, I was actually going to say, I think the second part of that line maybe is trying to do more heavy lifting. Like, the fact that, A, yes, the the Belters had chosen to do this, but that he had chosen to react in this way. Like, right. I, I agree with you, but I also think, like, I feel like the line is trying to do more than that. Like, I think it's trying to say, like, this is a choice that I am making in response to a choice that they are making. So it's probably, like, he's probably not saying I'm an evil man, but he's, like, I do think to an extent he is wishing he could have done something different. Either wishing he could have done something different or or sticking to his guns, so to speak. Like, I think he's, 
at that moment he was okay that this was the right decision quote unquote that needed to be made um and he knew like the cost of that decision and he was willing to to um have that cost so but it's a chilling line anyway and it's actually an interesting line because like you say it and like we've brought up like the patterns of the language on this show and it reminds me of some of the patterns that we hear on the show it reminded me of a quote that we'll hear way later um in season four and it's about choice and it's about how like well if if you know i'm like not trying to spoil so like the character one character is like oh like none of this would have happened if i hadn't whatever and then the other character is like well if you hadn't done this then you you know if you blame yourself then none of this would have happened if these people didn't do this or if the people before them didn't do this and so kind of pointing at how it's sort of a cycle of of violence and a cycle of oppression and one person's choice isn't really the like the focus which is not to say that one person can't do the right thing but that like you can't put every the weight of the world on yourself um which maybe kind of goes back to here with Fred, like, you know, Fred could have decided that he wasn't going to be the boot and that he wasn't going to be the butcher of Anderson Station. But I think you could make the argument that if he didn't do it, someone else would have. Oh, definitely. Um, so even if, and that's kind of how it is now, like, you know, if now Fred is the head of the OPA and he was, he, he left the military, or I guess he was disgraced from the military. Uh, actually, no, he left, right? He was like, he left. Like, nor- yeah, so he left, but that doesn't make the Earth's military any less frightening. It doesn't make it any less dangerous. It doesn't prevent another Anderson station from happening. Um, so, yeah, just, just you know, interesting thoughts about choice and, like, one person versus a cycle versus a system. I actually, like, um, really like your point about him kind of taking responsibility for his choice because at some point Anderson does says oh so you were just following orders Mm. and instead fred goes well (laughs) i'm just gonna read the quote outright sure that nuremberg crap won't work on me i followed orders and that i was instructed by my superior officers to retake the station from the terrorist forces occupying it i judged that order to be legal and appropriate and everything that came after was my responsibility i took the station legal (laughs) Ooh, I took the state <laughs> and I did so while trying to minimize first loss of life to my people and second damage to the station. There's so much in there. Jeez, where do you start? Um, the Nuremberg comment caught me off guard. <laughs> yeah, explain, please. I find it interesting that he has the opportunity to say, look, this is what the government told me to do. So I was just doing it. But bringing it to Nuremberg is acknowledging that this is an atrocity that occurred. And I'm different from people who committed a very notorious atrocity in that I'm going to take responsibility for what I did. Mm. But does that make him, like, apologize for it? Or just, no. like... Be, like, you, he's you know? still standing on what he did. Yeah. It's, and, it reminds me of a character that is in season four. Um, you're so right. 
I can't wait to get to season four. I know. For all we like, for all we were like so like middling on season four, like I think we just keep going back to it because it's it's. I think it was more there was because all the chickens come home to roost. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, we didn't have like the most excited opinion about season four when we watched it, but like I just keep noticing how much we just keep talking about it, even the parts that we like we're not as big fans of but yeah the, the point is that there's a there's a character in season four that like this this quote that you're talking about reminds me of and I do like that Fred takes that approach I like that he's like like yeah I did this and what <laughs> you've talked about and this is going to be in a later episode the language and the the use of the word legal and in this you know in this passage Fred is saying like I was given a legal, what is it, a legal and direct order or something? Um, that order was um, legal and appropriate. He judged that order appro- to be legal and appropriate. Wow. I mean, it just, you know, no laws on series, just cops. Like, yep. who has power? Power is given to those who, like, oh, man, it's just so, the layers. Because in another, yet, like, under another set of laws, that would be... Murder. It's a war crime. <laughs> exactly. A war crime. But it's, you know, whose laws do these places, What's under legal? what jurisdiction? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're so excited to I talk about this Like, what's legality? Yeah, you know, what? just because something is legal doesn't make it right. And that is, that's not a controversial statement at all. I think that is something... You know, not to be like in this moment, but there are a lot of things we could talk about right now that are legal, but are absolutely morally wrong. So I like that Fred has that response. I like that the show in general, like touches on this. So that's cool. I forgot the rest of the quote because I got so excited about Um, that part. The next part, and I know we both have a lot to say about this, is... He was trying to, he says, I was trying to minimize first loss of life to my people and second damage to the station. At no point do we mention Belter lives in that. First of all, hello. Second of all, my people, you know, he's probably talking about his soldiers, but you could extend that to the earth. Um, So my people versus their people, us versus them. And then damage Um, to the station. Normal versus other yes hello We're prioritizing I mean, property over people and it's it's it would be redundant for for me to explain how like this is very relevant I, even, I just yeah i mean prioritizing property over life is not um unfortunately not unfamiliar so i mean the wording is just very very carefully chosen and that is so chilling because he's so okay with it. and i think i bet you that he knows like what he's saying like he knows that what he's saying does not prioritize the life of belters at all and the fact that i think part of the quote i don't know if earlier he was saying like it was a bunch of terrorists and and belters and like kind of the way that earth and mars sort of jumps to any um uh rebellion as terrorists is fascinating like even in the show itself like the fact that the opa is immediately considered a radical fringe terrorist group 
um, there was actually something in this episode where um, they talk about the riots on series. And I was, I had written down a couple things about like the language that they used. I think it was when Chris and Alex are watching some news feed and the news anchor is talking about like what happened on series. And we know that what happened on series was back in episode, I want to say three, but it might've been four. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. You would think we would know because we just talked about it. <laughs> I know, we literally just talked about it. It's on episode three. Um when the riots happen and the, the the words that I I picked up on that I wanted to discuss was the report was about uh, Belcher extremists um, and they described it as you know like a violent riot and um, a well one thing that was interesting was that the, the it was described as uh, anti-colonial outrage and I think the use of colonial is very intentional here as much as like this isn't like the old, old 1800s. So like, it's not exactly like, you know, colonizers come on a ship and wipe out the Native Americans. But in a futuristic sense, it's like, you know, the belt is a territory of earth that has no rights, no representation, um, but is still sort of counted for the benefit of earth. So you can see why it's described as like anti-colonial outrage. Um, and also calling them Belcher extremists that were the ones protesting and the fact that they call it a riot, um, even though we know at the beginning it started. I mean, again, this kind of goes back to like the portrayal of the riot as it, as we saw it on screen and understanding like that the news report is trying to be biased in a, not trying, but is biased in a sense. Like I sort of talked through my feelings about like, how I wish the that scene was portrayed, but like assuming that that was the sort of nicest way that they could have done it, the news report is like these Belcher extremists were rioting, they were destroying property, they were um, risking innocent lives, and, and it's a lot of very charged words. And then when they talk about the the um, blowing up the Canterbury, they describe it as some people call it a, a massacre versus what others dismissed as a mere industrial accident. And that's the only part of the report that is like a conflict of messaging. And I thought that was like, I was like, oh, I've seen this before <laughs> on my own, like on my own television, um, on a, on a news channel about, about, um, protests. And it was, it's, again, it's the use of language. Like the, the news report is very decisive on certain parts to, to sell a narrative but when it comes to the actual crime, it's it's wishy-washy, basically. It doesn't really say what happened. Um, but yeah. And just wild it's stuff. Great. My very last comment on Fred Johnson, I swear. Oh. Um, after Anderson Station, he gets a Medal of Freedom. And he's talking to one of his superiors and he's questioning... Because now he knows that they surrendered. And he's questioning, well, why was that transmission hidden from me? And I think that that... I think it's interesting that he would ask that because if they hadn't... If you hadn't found out that they surrendered, then you would say that you were still justified in it. You would feel bad about it, but 
yeah it's almost like it's still like they kind of brought it on themselves like you should be angry about the fact that they were put in that position in the first place rather than the fact that they were killed after they surrendered that's interesting because we were just saying like fred was pretty comfortable like uh taking responsibility for his actions and now it kind of comes off that like oh well if only he knew that they weren't being violent or whatever that they had surrendered suddenly he would have changed his mind and it's almost yeah it's kind of like i don't think i believe you like i don't think that's that's what would have happened i think the same outcome would have happened because again this is not the matter of one man making a decision this is the matter of power and asserting power and the system of it uh, the cycle of it so yeah, I, I'm just sitting here like I don't believe you, man. I don't. I don't think maybe he wouldn't have massacred them, but I I don't think he would have like called off his troops. Like I don't think he would have been like okay. Like I still think they would have made an example out of Anderson Station, which is what they what was the point in the end. I I think right. That's why they hit. And the that's part of why he's angry sort of because at some point he says they made me a butcher. And that's essentially at like after that realization it that's where it ends and then you find out that he did not mess it's not that he didn't choose to go to the OPA but Anderson does whole point in bringing him there was to find out more about him and it turns out that he's trying to recruit him and that's how he got into the OPA but there's not a lot of explanation as to why he was hanging around those belter bars so my guess is that he knew something was going to happen. At some point, Anderson Dawes does also imply that he's suicidal. And that's why he, as the butcher of Anderson Station, would be walking around places chock full of belters. Yeah. I think they talk about this in season two with my favorite character. Um, I remember something about this. So that's something that we'll that touch on interesting. I. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I'm like, we're talking so much about Fred. I, I almost wish that we the show would just give us more Fred. I don't know um, if I do, to be honest. <laughs> oh! I, I, it's, it, uh, I mean, the way the show chooses to, and we haven't even met him yet. We're like talking so far ahead, but the way the show really presents him to us is like the man he is now contending with the past that he has had. And I, I just, I, it would be so interesting to have more of that gap filled in, in the show. I mean, by now we're sort of, we're really past mm-hmm. it um, when we're talking about going into like season five. I don't even know like what, what, what I, okay, no spoil. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, but yeah, just cool stuff, interesting stuff. Um, I think there were a couple comments I had about like the team in general before we Absolutely. move on. Um, let's see, let's see. Um, oh, there was a small moment when Holden wakes up in the very beginning of the episode, and this is only because I had my headphones on, but, like, I don't know if you heard this, but there was, like, a lot of, like, slow-mo screaming in the background that I thought was Amos in some weird, like, time jump way where, like, he's screaming before we actually hear him scream later because, like, his leg is, like, totally messed up. Interesting editing choice. I was like, what am I hearing? Um... Or maybe it's like the lost souls of the dead. I don't or he's know. still dreaming um, that because was... they just escaped from the Donager. So I think everything you said is valid. Mm. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are still um, valid. There's also... <laughs> I appreciate that. There's a line when Naomi is talking... 
again when Holden wakes up and she's like, come and help me. And she's just so like, she's just, I, she, I get this, she's very like tightly wound. Like she's just like, if someone would give her the opportunity, she would burst, but she can't burst. So she can only get away with these like little, like, just like, just like, come yeah, on. Cause she was sitting uh, there trying to help she- Amos and she, I know she kept looking over at Holden like, he is really still asleep. I can't. <laughs> oh yeah and alex was just like oh yeah he was the last one to wake up wow Abe, come on holden useless um but yeah there's a line where like holden's like oh uh can you i don't know fix his leg and then she says i fix ships not people which is a great summation of her her character in this season um which is cool um also, uh, I think we should talk about probably the most important part of the the their plot this episode, which is naming the ship, which is the Rosinante, which this has been analyzed to death, but I feel like we're like obligated to explain why he named it the Rosinante for any new viewers, I guess. Yes, ma'am. Um, so uh, the Rosinante, the Rosinante, Rosinante is the name of the horse in the book Don Quixote, which we said we would come back to time after time. Holden as a character is really connected with Don Quixote because in the universe, he sort of believes in those ideals of chivalry and and like justice. And so he kind of misinterprets the concept of Don Quixote, which is that those ideals are not, um, they, they don't work, I guess. Again, I've never read the book, so I'm really just going off, like, my Wikipedia searches. Um, and so him naming the ship the Rocinante, they say in the show that it's Spanish for workhorse, so it's, like, kind of trying to imply that it's, like, it's a, ste- it's a steady, dependable uh, tool, ship, companion, when in reality, in the book, the Rocinante is this really, really old horse, and it's, like, really weak, and it's not dependable, I guess. And the whole point is, like, it's taking him, it takes Don Quixote on this journey of, like, misguided chivalry. So it's another instance of Holden sort of misinterpreting the point and, you know, connecting to his misunderstanding of the world as it is. It also creates a cute inverse because if in reality um, Rasanante is this, you know, old workhorse, um, our ship, Rasinante, they're disguising it as this old gas hauler, but in reality, it's this state-of-the-art ship that anyone would love to get their hands on. Mmm, layers. They are tasty. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think that's all I had about, uh, the yep. team. I, uh, there was one thing actually about the Anderson Station story that I thought was kind of cool. Um, when you first meet Mar, oh my God, is his name yes. Marum? <laughs> yeah, his name is Marum. <laughs> Shout out to Mirage. This um, is a Mirage guess- friendly podcast. This is a Mirage. Please read podcast. Mirage and I, by. Like, I- oh God, I feel like I'm butchering her name. Is it Samaya? <laughs> I would say Samaya Dao, yes. maybe. I I hope so. And if not, please feel free to correct us. This is the very first time <laughs> we've like said these words out loud. Because as I was reading this, I was like, wait. Like literally as I was speaking, I was like, oh my God. Because I've just finished the Mirage series. Um, 
and there's a character <laughs> named Marum. So I was like, wait a second. So this guy is named Marum. Um, he's the the leader of uh, the Belchers that are that are sort mm-hmm. of protesting. And when we first meet him, he's like sort of oh, he's talking to his kid, and she's he's like helping her like play a game about colors and shapes. Actually, it looked like kind of a confusing game. Like it's like you have to connect two different shapes, but they're the same color. And it's like, what if the game is connecting the same shapes of a different color? Like I think that would really mess with a child's head. Anyway, so she's doing that, and he talks to her in the Belcher Creole. And then when he kind of gets up and like goes on communication with the UN, he immediately switches to like a, I guess it was an American accent, which is like, I, I just, I re- watched that and I was like, okay, that's like a deliberate change of, um, code switching called? of accent code switching. Yes. So deliberate code switching, which is, you know, cool to see. Um, and then he kind of keeps in that accent while he's talking to the other Belchers, which is, I was like, okay, they're just like doing that just to do it, whatever. But I thought that was a cool thing. And then actually, as I'm saying it, one other thing I remembered about the Anderson Station story is there's, um, it's actually a quote, so maybe I will save it. Yeah, I'm going to save it for the notable quotables. There's a quote from that story, which I think is relevant to what we are and talking about. And we will about. definitely come and back to And that is my thought. I do want to tack on something about yes, your ma'am. point with his accents um, and the code switching is... I do wonder if that also kind of illustrates why he's the one that is speaking for everyone because the UN might be more willing to accept him because of the way that he's able to express himself rather than talking to belters who can't switch out of their accents. Oh, absolutely. And now you're making me think of a character we meet in season two and the discussions we've had, but... I'll save that for later. We're really though this whole podcast uh, exists so that we can talk about stuff that happens after season one. (laughs) But we're giving I would say we're giving season two. We definitely are. Like we just had a you know, I but it it's just slow. (laughs) And on that note Um, did you have any more thoughts? Oh, did you have any more thoughts about uh, the team or I did not, which means we can finally move on to series, which also makes up a good portion of this episode. Yeah, it's really just series, the Rocinante and yep. Station. So I think I want to pick up with how... Um, Star Helix reacts to Havelock, Havelock's murder attempt. They immediately react like they're in a war. And the director, like, explicitly states, it's okay to brutalize and murder people because, you know, they started it. And I think it's interesting that they react this way when most of them don't even like Havelock. But they're reacting this way simply because it was a cop that was attacked. They're cops first, exactly. second. It's interesting because a couple episodes ago, I think there was a whole thing where Shadid was like, we can't um, attack OPA members because they are like law-abiding citizens. And now it's like everybody's right. here. But I mean, it also affects their power because if you can attack one cop and not suffer 
severe consequences. They don't want voters to, you know, get too cocky. Mm, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think in general, it's just very apparent how much, and I think this is intentional on the show's part, like whenever you really do see the Star Helix team, it's it's not really portrayed as people taking care of the community or protecting community. It's really them policing the community right. and enforcing order, basically. And I, I feel like that's intentional. I um, agree. You know, as, as much as much as Miller gets flack for like, you know, not really caring about justice or whatever, I think it's fair to say that as a whole, Star Helix is not portrayed as people who are trying to make series better. Not at all. They're just people trying to sort of maintain the status quo. Um, even I think this is the episode where Shadid said like we're an Earth Corporation, so like we have to stay neutral. So it's kind of like remember where your loyalties are. It's not to the people of this um, station; it's to the people who pay us, basically. Exactly. Which is you know, it's interesting. And I actually think that this is kind of a link to the Anderson Station story because they made an example of Anderson Station. Because um because they tried to rise up, and over here on series ten years later, we're essentially doing the same thing. Ooh yeah. I mean, people That's change, but circumstances don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just said that. Um, yeah, I I agree. I well, actually kind of regarding Star Helix and everything. Um, Havelock and Gia are just out here being very cute um and I also wanted to talk about them like seriously um but it was it was really funny where like Havelock can barely get out of bed but the minute um Miller like threatens Gia he's like he's like try that again like watch how fast I get out it's like you're not going anywhere sir like I don't know what you think you're sweetie, doing sweetie like you're five <laughs> eight with a hole in your chest <laughs> exactly like what are you gonna do um, but I think that whole scene is actually really interesting because Miller is pissed off the minute that he sees, uh, Gia enter, and he immediately thinks that, like, I think he kind of thinks of it as Havelock being, like, persuaded to this side mm -hmm. of things, which is, like, and, and Miller's not portrayed as being in the right. Miller is portrayed as being who he is with his ideals, with his values, and so he's pissed off because he sees Havelock going down this path I think he feels like Havelock is going to get killed, basically, if he continues trying to be a good person, yeah. so to speak. Um, which, you know, maybe there's a commentary being made here about how you can't really be a good person if you're a part of the Star Helix because of what they value and what they're here to do, which is an interesting... We're making thing. a hint here um, if you're not picking it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, and... and I, I, but like on the other hand, like it was kind of nice to see Gia there, and like it's nice to see Havelock be that person, kind of be the Holden on that on series where he's like, look, I'm not just gonna stand around and like, yeah. To be fair, like he is an Earther. I feel like that's a level that's like unexplored yet. But he is an Earther, so already his presence there is like comes with a lot of weight in the wrong way almost, and yet he's the person who is. Because he's an Earther, he is almost has the advantage advantage. 
the privilege of not uh, feeling too connected with the struggle. And so it's quote unquote easier for him to quote unquote rise above and see things more clearly, which is frustrating for somebody who might be a belter and has lived in this kind of situation and has become jaded by everything he's seen. It must be frustrating to see Havelock be that person who just can kind of, you know, make the right decision because he doesn't have that same connection mm-hmm. to everything that's happening. But at the same time, it's like, I, I do appreciate that Havelock is making that effort to, like, I keep referring these relationships to Gia, but I, what I mean, like, overall is his, his willingness to try to learn to try to understand the community, basically. He's basically doing something that Miller should have been doing, or that Star Helix should have been doing, but isn't. And the interesting complexity of that is that he, his presence is, like, his, 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 the weight of his presence is what's causing these problems in the first place, basically. So, again, just like, I think just like an interesting juxtaposition of a person. And you can kind of go back to the idea of choice. Like, Havelock's choice of, integrating with the community isn't going to change everything it's not going to make things better it might you know might not do anything at all but it's still he still has the ability to make that choice and if that's at least helping one person then that's better than nothing you could argue so honestly you have given more thought and analysis to have luck than i ever have so i appreciate that (laughs) like you've made me appreciate the writing for his character a little more Wow, that's a high compliment. <laughs> I just think it's interesting because, like, you know, Miller is supposed to be this foil to Holden in some way. Like, if Holden is sort of like the naive guy who doesn't understand the world as it is, Miller is the guy who is too firmly, like, he believes too firmly in the world as it is, and he's not willing to try and change things. And so I feel like Havelock almost acts as a proxy for Holden before spoiler they ever meet um that's a great point so i just i don't know it's just interesting to see havelock because i mean i don't know i, I see havelock and i kind of see him as holden like I, I think he has some of the same characteristics as holden and i think part of that is because he's an earther and he's you know to him he probably joined star helix because it was like oh i need a job and this is to protect people and he doesn't realize that that's not really how star helix works that's not how power dynamics on series works um, and so he is also naive, but that doesn't make his point of view um, any less important. That's a great point. To other parts of the series, it does feel like we're seeing a little bit of a change in Miller's behavior. Like up until this point, we've seen him be very comfortable with people referring to him as, you know, a scumbag and an opportunist and all these other things. But in the scene in his apartment with Octavia, when she implies that he is, you know, once again, a scumbag, that's when he actually finally fesses up about Julie. Like, this is something that he truly cares about and that he's invested in. But is he motivated by, like, he doesn't want Octavia to think poorly of him? Or is he more so trying to, he doesn't want people to think poorly of Julie as just this, you know, random, spoiled little rich girl. 
So, like, is he protecting Julie's legacy or is he protecting his image in Octavia? That's a really good question. I feel like it's Julie's legacy. Like, I I think it's safe to say Miller doesn't believe in himself at all. Um, but he sees Julie as, like... And this is actually something I had a couple notes on. Like, the way he sees Julie is, like, kind of as this girl who was very pure before she came to series station and was sort of yep. taken advantage of by it and so because he sees it that way he feels responsible for um protecting like you're saying protecting her legacy and not letting people write her off um because i think it's easier for miller to see the good in others than it is in himself but that being said, this is a projection because Miller doesn't see the good in Belters on series. He doesn't care about the Belters on series. Nope. He doesn't care about... I'm really fascinated by his relationship with the OPA and how he just does not like them at all. And I'm... I, like, there had to have been a point in his life when he did like them. He had to have, like, thought about them in a positive light at one point and something had to have happened for him to change his mind. Um, and so part of me is, like, maybe he sees Julie as this innocent girl partly because she is an earther and she hasn't been sort of corrupted by the stain of like the OPA and that's why he hates the OPA so much in this sequence but I no I think that you are absolutely on point with that because especially with in contrast to him projecting on her because in this episode we see him rejecting anything that contradicts that that idea of her when he tracks down um, Neville? the man who knew Ju- Neville I've got a lot you. of I, re-watch, I had to rewatch that scene a lot because of uh, some score tracking so that's only one reason I know his name <laughs> um, when he tracks him down he almost entirely rejects the information that Neville gives him because from Neville's perspective, Julie knew exactly what she was getting into and she was happy to be there. She went in with eyes wide open and nobody hoodwinked her. No one was manipulating her because she chose to be there. And he, Miller, is really frustrated at the story about the Belter aid camp where she's almost like fully accepted into the Belter group in the OPA. Like, that is when he gets, we see him at his angriest in that scene. Isn't it frustrating? Like. Like, someone is giving you more information about this person that you feel like you know, and you're rejecting it because it does not line up with, you know, what you would personally like to believe. Yeah, there's, it's almost like, it's, there's no, um, you're not honoring Julie's legacy, by pushing this story onto her. If that's not who she is, then that's not who she is. And I, I appreciate that the show takes the, the lens that, like, this is Miller projecting on her, and this isn't Miller just discovering the life about this girl, because, again, like, we are, we own, so far, we only know who Julie is through Miller. And so it's really important to, like, make that clear that all the conclusions we're coming to about Julie is through Miller and through what Miller believes. Like we, I'm going to say this for the next episode, but Julie, if Julie had met Miller in real life, we would have a different image of her. 
I, I firmly believe. Totally. And, and I, I, I think it's fair to say, like, I don't think Miller is totally wrong. I think Miller is right in some parts, but I think it's fair to say she's more complex than either person is giving her credit for. Like, she probably did come to the OPA and she probably was really inspired by them, but she probably also didn't realize how deep, like, how, um, I don't know, how complicated things were going to get. Because even Neville says that. He, oh, he's like, Neville. oh, she started hanging around some hardcore OPA. To me, which means that even to Neville, who is a belter, there is a concept of hardcore OPA. And for Julie, she doesn't. She might not have understood that at that point. She might have just seen it as like the next necessary step. And so I think it's fair to say that Julie was a bit of both. And it's not fair that Miller makes her out to be. I think there was like a quote specifically I wrote down that, you know, Miller says that she, like, uh, something, 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 over some stupid cause she barely understood anyway. And it's like, yeah, Julie's young. She's the youngest person on the show, but she's not a child. And denying her the ability to, to make that choice, even if it was the wrong choice, like, denies her the agency that we should be giving her. Because we don't, we still haven't really met her at this point. So... Get it together, Miller. Um, I do want to say one more point about, you know, Miller and Julie. And I think that this point is maybe influenced by knowing how this story ends. But I think enough seeds have been sown that it's not out of place to consider that Miller sees himself in Julie as similar in certain ways, but of course she's still better than him. But in that they both reject the culture that they grew up in, and then they're essentially disowned by their community in response to that. But he doesn't really wrap his mind around the fact that Julie chose the belt where he is choosing to reject it. And Julie also chose to reject Earth where he's choosing to reject the belt but their reasoning is entirely yeah, different i totally agree he he sees himself in her as much as he see like mm-hmm. he just projects a lot onto her he sees <laughs> her as this like uncorrupted person he also sees himself in her he also sees her as like a representation of the opa's like dirty deeds as well as, like, his desire to be an earth. It's just, like, she is just one girl. She cannot be, like, all of these things to him. Um, yeah, it's, 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 um, it's just layered, I guess. Do we have anything left to say about Oh, uh, I mean, yes. Yes, um, like, reading my notes. So, the one last thing about Miller we're staying on series because hello, Anderson Dawes is in this episode and he does. Absolutely. I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this scene now. I know. Well, I, I think we should, this is a good segue, I think into the quote section, but um, the other <laughs> thing I wanted to bring about Miller, uh, this isn't like an analysis, but just like the rack stuff. I always forget what that like sequence of events is, but it was cool to see it again. So it's like, Miller sees the rat running in Julie's room, like in the little wheel, which by the way, is super gross that it's a rat. Um, we see it for a couple episodes. I'm actually furious <laughs> that I would go all the way to space 
and there would still be rats. <laughs> like, are you serious? It brings up a good question. Can you have like pets in space? Or in this I space? ask this very in this same space, question in this, world, uh, in this universe. Apparently, later in the books, somebody has a dog, but it's very expensive and difficult to keep an animal alive in space. But people occasionally do do it. I'm I like it would have been interesting if they went the fantasy route too, and it was like animal hybrids. But um, anyway, back to the rats. <laughs> um, so the rats in the room, and then uh, Miller goes to the lair of the now dead data broker where he finds, like, schematics of another rat and then goes back to Julie's room to get the rat and finds the data chip, which was, I just, the thing I love about Miller's story is how he finds these answers, like, these little things that are slowly coming together. So, just cool stuff. Now, (laughs) let's get to the crux of the reason this episode exists. That's not true. Um... (laughs) But I mean, it does get to the point where we really explain the name. I of mean, the this I, I would say this scene and Fred's stuff is like the best parts of this episode. Um, so Definitely. I, though we did spend a good portion of this episode talking about <laughs> the actual book instead of <laughs> the actual episode, but we do enjoy this. Episode. I think this is the. I, I was gonna say, like, I realized we haven't really been recapping this episode properly, but um, that's why you should watch it. But um, so Miller's at the bar. Um, I think he's eating ramen, which is, like it just looked. I'm so glad that like ramen <laughs> still exists in the 23rd century. Um, and I think he's like doing research on Julie and Anderson Dawes swings by. Uh, really, just Jared Harris is just. Great. He has a great, some great stuff in the next episode, but he is such a fantastic guest character, uh, guest actor. Um, I do not know how they got him because he's like, you know, pretty prestigious. Um, so anyway, he swings by, as he does, and he talks to Miller. I don't actually remember the exact content of what they were talking about, but I think Miller was just. You know, I mean, like, he knows that Miller's still looking for Julie, and he also yeah. gives him some information on the guy who tried to kill Havelock. Yes, right, that's why. Because he's trying to say, like, look, I can give you something, you can give me something. And it's interesting that Miller's like, that sounds like a bribe. It's like, you were you were accepting bribes in the first episode, man. I don't know. You don't <laughs> like, want who, this who bribe, so now you want to be yeah. righteous. Yeah, which is which is funny because because you know he's pissed off that um and this is a spoiler for the next episode but you know maybe don't listen for the next fifteen seconds but when he finds out that Shadid has been bought by the OPA and he's so mad it's like but aren't you you know isn't everybody in this Star Helix group accepting bribes from somebody like what makes the OPA any different if you don't if you don't care about series what makes it any different but um you know he uh. He, uh, Anderson Dawes is like, I give you something, you give me something. And then he starts sort of talking about his dreams, basically, for the OPA. And there's a couple things I wrote down about, about that specifically, where he says what he wants, ultimately, is a series for Belters run by Belters. Um, and this is where they kind of get into the fact that this that series station is sort of like 
kind of feels like the capital of the belt, so to speak. Um, and that if you can control series, that's a lot of power that extends beyond series. But it also kind of cements that this is an anti-colonial narrative. Like the language is very deliberate. It's it's not that they're just securing equal representation. It's not that they're just securing you know basic human rights. It's that they're they are advocating for um, they're advocating for self autonomy for being able to you know govern their own states um, and uh, he says a series run by belters for belters and he like it, it, they're kind of talking about self autonomy and they're also talking about um, it made me think about like series as a state of its own versus like a part of the belt like I think we sort of had this discussion and I know people um, it, who, who watch the show have had this discussion but like how do we look at the belt as like a nation state basically like is it it's is it a one country if like if we're trying to think about like comparisons or is it more of like a collection of states that want the same thing um like a collection of colonies basically um so almost i think as we i was gonna say i was gonna say like almost like a, a third world um alliance as opposed to one country mm-hmm. agitating for independence right i think that that is a question that belters are trying to confront because each of them have different ideas and of course they depending on what part of the belt you're from you all also might have different priorities Say belters who live on Ganymede maybe aren't worried about all the exact same things that belters on Ceres or the other end of the belt would be worried about. Aside from, of course, having enough air, water, and food. Speaking of, they get at that again in this in his monologue in this episode where he where he talks about um uh the, the the metaphor of air but instead of water he also says light like the idea of being able to look up mm-hmm. and seeing a sky which this whole monologue is a lot like um sergeant lopez's monologue about water and air so both of them have the air thing in common but mars has a sky and the belters don't so mars is like i like it would be nice to see an ocean on mars And Belchers are like, it would be, imagine looking up and not seeing space. Like, imagine being able to just look up and see an atmosphere that is meant to protect you. So even though, like, Mars and the Belt have have a similar view of Earth, it's interesting how they still kind of diverge in what they ultimately value. It's, it's, It's a nice detail that, like, they still kind of have slightly different priorities. And, of course, it also cements that, like, as much as Martians are, you know, have their own desires, they're still very much like stamping out, the, stepping on the belt in order to achieve that. Um, exactly. So just, you know, just cool stuff. And it's just in general, that whole monologue. Ugh. I think and that whole monologue honestly explains why the OPA exists. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to elaborate that. that. <laughs> You know, like I said it, and then I was like, "Damn, I need to follow." Up. <laughs> <laughs> but like, 
they understand how belters are being exploited. But there's also the idea that, like you said, they have dreams that they want other belters to be able to experience. And one of those dreams is the right to self-determination, which is granted to, say, Mars, even though they kind of had to take it. And the belt is going, well, why don't we deserve that too? And, I mean, side note, right to self-determination is part of the charter for the United Nations, so. Ooh, it gets spicy. I guess that's something that we stop valuing. But (laughs) there's also the question, do we value it today? It's getting spicy. Um... (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's it's very, this is my favorite part about the show, I think. Like, and like, so maybe let me continue with the monologue. But Dawes says, Anderson Dawes says, um, you know, Earthers have, Earthers have a home. It's time Belters had one too. That, ugh, it's great. And, and he says, you know, Earthers have, they have light, they have air, they have water, they have a sky. And what do they do? They don't value it in the same way that Lopez is like Earth just uh, doesn't respect that they had all this and they gave it up and they wasted it. And uh, Anders uh, Dawes's perspective is a little bit different. It's not that Earthers wasted it; it's that they wanted more. So again, a slight difference of values. And the best quote of the series. I mean, literally, like nothing compares. So he says, Earthers. Um, they, they, earthers get to walk outside into the light, breathe pure air, look up at a blue sky and see something that gives them hope. And what do they do? They look past that light, past that blue sky, they see the stars and they think mine. And it's just, oh, I get chills thinking about it. Ooh. Like at what point, is there something that you don't get to claim? And it brings to question, how do you own land? How do you own space? Who owns the stars? Seriously. <laughs> Come on. Ugh, this is my fucking favorite part of this show. Like, I, I know a lot of fans really love, like, the accuracy and the world building, but it's really, like, this self-determination stuff that just gets me going, man. Like, this is why I stuck with the show. Um, and this is all stuff that happens later. But it's just, like, and it's so valuable that Anderson Dolls has this perspective. He's like, look, we are not, like, it's not simply a matter of wanting our rights. Even though, like, it could just be. It's the fact that the people who control us are going to keep wanting more and more and more and they won't stop, and why, they keep, like, he fundamentally can't understand why Earth, why Earth can't just stop and appreciate the planet that they have, which is, you know, you could even look at that argument and be like, there's something to think about in, in today's world, um, but, like, thinking about it in the context of the show, it's just great, like, it's, and this is a theme that, like, every season just gets, like hammered at in different ways and different different contexts and different situations power belonged 
way that you can justify saying this is mine is if you're able to back that up and keep somebody else from saying this is also mine. Yeah, I just, it is, I don't even like know what to say because we're not even getting into the thick of it yet. This is like the beginning. This is like the seeds of one of the big themes of the show, um, or I guess one of the big arcs of the show. Um, And it's, like, if you give me any more time, I'm just going to spend 10 minutes. just. (laughs) I want to just quickly return to Earthers Have a Home. It's time we had one too. Yeah. Because someone could argue that, I mean, series is your home. But here's the thing. They're treated like guests in their home. They're not in charge of what happens. And they have to ask permission to do things in a place where they live. That is the problem. Mm-hmm. It's such a, like, it's genuinely one of the best scenes out of the entire show. And the fact that it happens so early on. Yeah. Oh my god. I just like you're like getting wound up again. <laughs> um I one thing that I'm thinking of is like the only belter we don't really get to hear from about that is Naomi. Like Naomi doesn't really get to just say how she feels because she's so busy trying to be like I am not OPA that she doesn't really get yep. to she's around she's surrounded by um inners that she doesn't, she doesn't even get to have a perspective on self-determination, on the OPA, on a home for belters run by belters. So when we get into that, man, it's, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Um, that is my, that's my last thought. And, and maybe. Do, are there any other quotes that you were yes. interested in? Cause I do have one. Oh yeah. I, I have a couple quotes. Um, okay. So the one I am going to go to is, oh, well, since we're on Naomi, um, when she was talking to Amos, she, like, she was saying, like, why she can't stand Fred Johnson, and she said, I know, <laughs> she said, I know guys like Fred Johnson, pe- guys with causes, causes that get people killed, and the reason I said that is not for the reason that you're thinking, but it's because of a quote that I remember from episode three from remember the cant when she's getting interrogated and um she's telling lopez in that scene she says i will um she said i don't believe in causes and i will not be your scapegoat so in that scene it was about naomi being like i'm it was almost naomi being like miller being like i'm not a part of all this like rebellion like i'm just trying to like live my life um but in this scene she said it's almost it gives more context into why she's so against causes it's it's not just because she wants to just keep her head down it's because she she implies that she knows the cost of war and that she is not willing to pay that price and so she doesn't trust people like fred johnson who are willing to pay it so great it's a good point great quote my other one and it's the last one i have is um the Anderson station guys, um, and, uh, excuse me, and, uh, two of the Belgians are talking to each other, and one of them says, is, is that the kind of people we are now, um, and then the other one says, no, that's the kind of people they made us, and, I had that quote too, (laughs) (laughs) why don't you tell Uh, me why you, why you like it, why you wrote it down, I think that it's good to point out People do not just do 
things that we would normally disapprove of, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It is created by circumstances and the choices that people in power make. That's yeah. about it. I, I think it's fair, like, I think it's only fair to be like, as much as we talked about Fred and the choices he made, I think it's fair to like think about it in that context too, how we were like, you know, Fred, Fred didn't, Fred was actively like, I'm not just following orders. He was like, I'm making this choice and I know I'm making this choice and I know it's going to hurt people. Um, and I think it's fair to apply that to Beltras as well, but more in like a, like there in the same way that the circumstances enabled Fred to be comfortable with making that choice, to be comfortable with, you know, slaughtering belters, you can argue in the same way that the circumstances enable these belters to make the choice that this is the only way we can send a message. Um, and, and the reason I say it like that is because I don't want to be like, at the end of the day, they're still doing bad things. It's like, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, somebody did get killed and somebody did get hurt. And that is, uh, um, that is like, it's a tragedy, but the lens is always almost in the other direction. The, the focus is always almost in the other direction of the people in power who are getting hurt rather than the people who are being hurt by that power. And like, why do they, if we're going to apply this much analysis on why Fred gets to make these choices, then we have a responsibility to apply that same analysis of why these belters make these choices. And they make these choices because they're living in a system that doesn't respond in any other way. This is a system that uses violence to send, literally slaughters a station to send a message. And so it makes sense that, you know, sooner or later, somebody is going to respond, a belter or belters are going to respond in the same way to send that same message back. And for them, they don't have the power of uh, jurisdiction and the law and, you know, what is morally right on their side. They, they, they only have you know, rebellion and riots. And it's, it's just, you know, we have like a responsibility to, to see why they make these choices on either sides, quote unquote, of the conflict, quote unquote. Right. So yeah, that was the last of my quotes. Then I do have one more quote. It is Miller asking Neville, how long were you sleeping with her? And I think it's something that maybe needs to be unpacked a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because is, I mean, I do think that Neville had a relationship with Julie of sorts. But for Miller, could we also read that as him being like unable to untangle romantic feelings from admiration? Mm. or are we really just supposed to read it as you know he's a detective he can pick up on things and this is to signal to us that his testimony isn't entirely trustworthy because it's colored by his personal feelings about julie but that would also mean that miller's personal feelings about julie are coloring how he sees her which leads back right back to what you said where both of them are projecting on her a little bit and a so, lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just want to meet Julie. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where I'm like, right. I don't, I don't care about Miller. I don't care about Neville. I want to know what Julie thinks. And I also question, like, is he jealous? Uh, 
because what difference does it make if they are sleeping together? Exactly. Because this is still someone who actually knew her. Exactly. So I just thought that that was an interesting little piece. Do we have any small moments that are not quotes? <laughs> no, I tend I tend to collapse my small moments into the quotes because my favorite parts are usually what somebody says. Um, did you have any? Then I do. I think Holden, that moment where Holden's trying to encourage Naomi while she's working on the transponder code, <laughs> it's very endearing to me. She absolutely doesn't want or need you saying any of that, but it's still sweet. <laughs> And when he smiles when she does it, he looks exactly like an emoji. And I know (laughs) you know exactly which emoji that I'm thinking of. I I mean, I think I do, but I... But I'm still going to attach a picture for people to see when we upload it. It's going to be the cover art for the episode. Is it the one where it's it's one of those newer emojis where it's like the... I don't know how to describe it. Like the smile, the smiles are just these like parentheses. I mean, the, oh, the eyes I, are just these parentheses, I wasn't and thinking then the that. smile. Oh, and it's like, oh, I know what you're talking. Oh, it's one of like the wholesome smile emojis. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. exactly what he looks like to me. Oh, he has a crush on Naomi. Um, Sweet. And also being able to see the reflections of the body and debris in Fred Johnson's helmet when he blows up Anderson Station. It's something that I really only noticed on rewatch, but also only after watching this video that goes into like excruciating detail (laughs) about how much work goes into you being able to see reflections in their helmets. It's excellent. And I'll link to it. There are a few spoilers in it. So keep that in mind. It's it's like a digital render kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Just the thought of computer graphics makes me throw up. It's not a fun topic to learn. Anyway, I think this lets us move on to score tracking. Yes, it does. Excellent. Um, I <laughs> This episode and the next episode, because we, we record them in pairs, I was all over the place because I got very confused for a second because on the soundtrack, there are a couple tracks that are actually out of order. Um, and so I was just like, what am I missing? Um, but... Here is what I found. Uh, So the one track that I complained about, Tachi Station, I clearly didn't listen to the rest of it because then I did and I was like, wait, I've heard this in an episode. So the first track is Tachi Station. I still don't know about the first half of this track, which I assume must have been like either in episode four. Yeah, it must have been in episode four when they like get on the Rossi, which is at that point the Tachi. Um, but the second half of the track plays when the crew renames the ship to the Rocinante. Um, the track Truth uh, plays during Miller's conversation with Neville because it is they're talking about, you know, truths. Um, and there's this, like, and you'll have to listen to it, but there's this sort of variation of um, the four note arpeggio that I have talked about a lot that if you go to listen to Signal which is on the soundtrack and then you listen to this track there's a sort of variation on that arpeggio where it kind of only plays um the high notes and again you just have to have to listen to it when like to get what I'm saying but that plays sort of at the end of the track Truth 
and it's when Miller releases Neville and picks up Julie's picture, um, which I thought was like, it's just starting to recognize uh, late motifs that are starting to appear multiple times. And then uh, that same variation plays uh, when Anderson Dawes leaves Miller at the bar and it's, you know, after their whole big conversation about self-determination and, and property and, and all that stuff. So I, I, I think this four-note arpeggio in general, whether it's the variation, whether it's the, the motif itself, I think is, again, meant to, to, to describe sort of like the system at large and the story at large and is not necessarily meant to pick at one particular character. Um, so, yeah, there's that. And then the last one is called Running, um, which plays toward the very end when, uh, I actually don't remember what, I actually don't remember what happens at the end of this episode, but I think it's like when the crew is like settling into the Rosalante. And I think it's like mm-hmm. after Miller like picks up Julie's picture. So I think, I think that's what happens, but Running plays at the end of this episode. And I don't actually know why it's called running. I mean, I guess it's like the crew is like running from stuff, but they're running to Fred. So I don't have an explanation, but that's the tracks. Awesome. So Um, everything we know so far. I think. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I again, these notes are also messy. So I'm as I'm speaking, I'm going to try and collapse them into something um, understandable. But um, let's see. You guys will get extremely organized notes when we start donating to the Patreon that doesn't exist. <laughs> it might exist by the time we upload this. Um, <laughs> so by the end of this episode, here's everything that we know so far about the big mystery. Um, So Julie Mao was working with VOPA, and at some point she was meeting with a data broker um, who had information about the path of a ship called the Anubis. And the Anubis was en route from Phoebe Station to Eros, and it was carrying something important. And we know that on Phoebe Station, Mars had gone there, which is a research station, Mars had gone there and found that everyone was dead, and somebody was trying to cover something up. So whoever's on the Anubis from Phoebe Station to Eros, they were probably part of that cover-up. Julie Mao, um, on the Scopuli, went to intercept with the Anubis. Um, they were attacked, and they, she was headed out from Ceres Station, and they were held hostage on the Scopuli. Um, the uh, Scopuli was planted with a distress beacon, um, coincidentally with Julie Mao's distress call to lure somebody in. Um, and that is where the Canterbury comes in. Um, by the time that Holden and his crew come from the Canterbury to check out what happened on the Scopuli, they learn that something had happened on that ship had killed a lot of people and that somebody had to ensure there was no survivors, which would mean, which implies that somebody had to survive off the scopuli. Um, that's, I think I'm going to leave it at that because everything else is, is sort of like um, adjacent details that just help fill in the gaps, but this is really the core stuff. So 
Anubis went from Phoebe Station to Eros. Julie Mao went from Ceres Station on the Scopuli to intercept the Anubis. Some shit went down. The Canterbury get invo- got involved. Ships started blowing up. And now here we are. I can't wait to hear you do this at the end of the season. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to write a really, really like thorough outline. But I'll do my best. And I think that we did our best with this episode, and we can close on that note. And we'll see you guys back here, same time, same place, same RSS feed, (laughs) for episode six. And if anyone has something to say, questions or additional thoughts, y'all can hit us up at wholeinsandstarspod at gmail.com or at wholeinsandstars on Twitter. Have a great one.